Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave, Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the woman, and they were not ashamed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us your scriptures, that we might learn, that we might grow, that we might understand. We ask, Father in heaven, that we be free of all distractions this morning, that our minds be focused on what you have to teach us this morning. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. In the first episode of the second season of the Andy Griffith Show, there's a story about a bully that comes to town. It's called Opie and the Bully. Interesting little story. A bully comes to town. His new family moves in town, and their son is a bully. And the bully begins to pull Opie's friends away from him, and there's all this conflict, and Opie tries to, and does, Opie being the good kid, does stick to the right path and eventually brings the bully around and kind of pushes, gets the bully to go the direction he wants him to go. But when you watch that episode, I was watching this episode recently, and you there's lots of, it's like entering a whole different world when you watch an Andy Griffith episode. It's like, it's like more than sci-fi. It's something totally different, totally different world. But what struck me about that episode was not like all the, all the sort of trappings that you see there, you know, the small town life, the way they talk, the way Barney is with the little tickets. They're giving tickets for this and for that, just nonsense sort of stuff. No one's getting murdered. No one's getting killed. No houses are getting blown up. No aliens are showing up. And it's all just, they're fishing and they're going down the barbershop and talking with Floyd, all that sort of stuff, okay? That stuff is interesting. But what was most striking about this episode was the assumption Andy had that everybody in the town had the exact same moral compass he had. There was an ass- a basic moral assumption that this child was wrong. Andy knew he was wrong. The kid's parents knew he was wrong. In fact, part of the, the dynamic there is they don't go tell his parents, but they threaten to go tell this kid's parents. There's this underlying assumption that everybody in the town knows what is right and knows what is wrong. It's basic moral assumption about life and about how to approach life. That, of all the things that you see in that episode, that is most striking because that is what has been completely lost in our age. It doesn't matter who you talk to. You cannot assume basic moral categories anymore, especially when it comes to the family, especially when it comes to the dynamics between men and women, between husbands and wives. Even when I was growing up, which wasn't that long ago, even when I was growing up, 
there was sort of these basic moral categories that everybody had. And yes, people did bad things. People did bad things. People have always done bad things. There's always been people who have slept around. Always been people who were disrespectful to their parents. There's always been husbands who cheated on their wives and wives who treated their husbands with disrespect. But it was always assumed that was wrong. Okay, the categories were there. We can look at it and go, that was wrong. Hey, that child should not talk to his parents that way. That husband should not treat his wife that way. That wife should not treat her husband that way. We're not even getting into some of the other wilder things that go on these days. But now there are no basic moral assumptions in our world at all. You, when you're talking to somebody, you cannot assume they even know what a woman is, much less what a marriage is, what, much less what a man is supposed to be doing, much less what a husband is supposed to be doing. Over the last 40, 50, 60, 70 years, the world, especially the world revolving the family, has completely collapsed. Okay? It is like Nehemiah looking at the walls of Jerusalem. That is what we're looking at when it comes to the family. Everything has been torn down. Do, let's do a quick thought experiment. Imagine I'm preaching in 1950 to a congregation of this same size, a conservative congregation. I ask that congregation, how many of you have been directly impacted by divorce? Parents, grandparents, sisters, aunts, uncles, children. How many people in a congregation in 1950 raised their hand? It to be very, very, very few. Very few. Now, let's do that in here. Imagine if we do that in here. How many of you have been directly impacted by divorce? Children, cousins, aunts, uncles, yourself, your grandparents? Almost no one in this room has not been impacted by that. In 70 years, a completely different dynamic. So what are we as Christians supposed to do? Where do we go from here? When we look out, it's just carnage. The family is just carnage everywhere you look. What are we supposed to do? Well, we're going to do what Nehemiah did, okay? Nehemiah sat down, sat down and Nehemiah 1.4 says, when he looked at the walls of Jerusalem, we heard about them, heard about the walls of Jerusalem. He sat down and he wept and he fasted and he prayed and then he got to work. And then he got to work. And that's what we have to do. The walls are torn down. We have got to start rebuilding those walls. And this is going to be a very basic sermon on rebuilding the walls. Very basic. Okay, kind of like this is what a marriage is. This is what a family is. This is what this is going to be about. Very, very basic sermon. I'm going to list five principles of the family. And I'm going to give some specific application to groups in here. Okay, just specific groups in the congregation, how they can approach it. But this is a very bare bones sermon in a lot of ways. Each one of these topics could be a series of six, okay, six sermons on something. We're just going to talk very bare bones. And then basically keep in your mind as we go through this, the picture of Nehemiah looking at the walls and how you can, what, is your, what can you do to start rebuilding those walls? Okay, many of you are already doing this, okay? But what can we continue to do to rebuild the walls of the family that have been torn down? Okay, so the first thing is, let's begin where we ended last week. The family is downstream from worship, okay? When God called Israel out of Egypt, he did not call them and say, listen, I want you all, to, I'm going to bring you all out of Egypt so you can all go form your families and your tribes and your people over here and have a good family life. He called Israel out of Egypt to worship. He called Israel out of Egypt to worship him. Without right worship, the families, without the families being engaged in worship, the family will inevitably suffer. Families, solid families, are downstream from solid worship, okay? But this is a two-way street, okay? We can set a good meal, and you can refuse to eat. 
you can refuse to digest, okay? So just having a good worship service, what Pastor Garner talked about last week, just having a good worship service is not an automatic, okay? It doesn't automatically make a good family. The family has to engage in the worship service. The family has to be active in the worship service, okay? The family has to consider worship a priority. There are families that have sat in great worship services for a long time and not grown and not matured and eventually blown up. How does that happen? The worship service is good, but the family didn't engage. So last week, Pastor Garner talked about us having a solid, good worship service, which we do. We set a good meal. Okay? We try to bring the best things to you, scripture and the Psalms and the Lord's Supper. We try to bring all that to you, but you, the families, have to engage in it. The families have to get locked in. Okay? And he talked about some of that stuff last week. But good families are downstream from good worship. Okay? And that's why just focusing on the family is not enough. It's not sufficient okay, for, a re- for a reformation. Just the family is not sufficient. Reformation begins with the household of God. Reformation begins with this place in here. Okay? So the health and strength of families is directly proportional to the faithfulness of the worship service and the faithfulness of the worshiper. Okay? It doesn't happen automatically. Just don't come in here and like, woo, magically you're formed and shaped. No, you're shaped by engaging. You're shaped by being a part of it, okay? Just walking into a gym doesn't make you healthier, <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we go, well, I'll just go down to Planet Fitness and walk in and we'll come out healthier. That'd be fantastic. That's not how it works. You've got to go in there and exercise and work. So when you come into worship, engage, lock in, be ready. Talk, Pastor Garner talked about some of the things we could have done, what you could do, getting ready for worship Saturday night before, doing some of those things. So a godly family engages in worship with faith in God. They come in here trusting that God is going to do a good work in their lives, listening to the word, singing the psalms. And of course, those with children raise their children up in a way that they delight in worship. They emphasize the importance of worship to their children. Okay, this isn't just something we do. This is the best thing we do, the most important thing we do every single week. Okay? So first principle is, I'm going to spend a lot of time on that, but first principle is the family is downstream worship. It begins with worship. When God calls his people together, the first thing is worship, and then the family comes after that. The reformation and strengthening of the family comes after that. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing is the family was made by God to take dominion. Okay, the family was made by God to be fruitful. We see this in Genesis 1 and 2. We read some of this here. See in other passages, excuse me, where God tells Adam, uh, this right here, Read this in verses 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The family was made to take God's, the life of God, and take it out into the world, to take dominion over the world. The family is not primarily a place for fun or recreation. That should be part of it. That's not primarily what it is. A marriage is not primarily a place for romance. Okay, Romance is good. It's not bad. Husbands are going to say, Pastor Jones said we don't have to be romantic. This is great news. This is great news. I'm a terrible at it. No, romance is part of it, but a, a family is about getting things done. It's about being productive. God has given all of us a plot of land. Think land in quotes here. Has given you stuff, okay? House, car, bank accounts, jobs, 
You know, whatever it may be, God has given you those things and he wants us as families to make that grow, to make that fruitful. Think about the word, dominion is a good word, but I like the word cultivation better. We're to cultivate our land. We're to make it grow. We are to be fruitful. Obviously, the main way we do this is through children, but there's lots of other ways, lots of other ways. We take the natural world, iron, clay, trees, fruit, software, vegetables, children, and we use them to glorify God. Okay, This is what a family does. A family is productive. And there's been a huge upswing in this over the last 10 years. And the guy that's coming in next week, Pastor Wiley, has done a really good job with this. But when I was growing up, Every sermon you heard on marriage was all, husband and wife are like this. You know, it's all about love, all about looking deeply into each other's eyes and those sort of things, okay? Over time, you come to realize, no, what, what a marriage is is this. Husband and wife going somewhere, doing things, making things happen, all right? And uh, that is what the Lord has called upon a family to do. And this does not mean destroying things. It means making things fruitful, making things grow. Saruman in Lord of the Rings uses the land. The hobbits in Lord of the Rings use the land too, but they use the land in two totally different ways. In one sense, they're destroying everything. Okay? And you don't want to be that type of a family where things are just being destroyed. You want to be fruitful and growing. You want things to be beautiful. Okay? So a godly family is a fruitful family, a productive family. And this is going to look different in different homes. Okay? Don't always be looking over your neighbor's fence. Oh, what are they doing over there? You know? Kind of boring if we all went to Aldi and all they had was gala apples. That's all I was there. That'd be a pretty boring life. Same thing here. All of you have different ways of being fruitful. Okay, you don't need to be looking at your neighbor and, oh, well, he's got that. Why don't I have that? Or he doesn't have that. Why doesn't he have what I have? Each of you have a way God has given you to be fruitful. Make it grow. Make your home a beautiful place that glorifies God with the resources he has given to you. And this changes over time. When you're first married, you have certain resources. As you move into you know, being married 15, 20 years, different resources. As you get older, 30, 40 years of marriage, there's different resources, okay? Different resources. But the whole point is be fruitful. Leave things behind, things that have grown, children and grandchildren and bank accounts. Leave those things behind, okay? We want to be a fruitful family. We want to have fruitful families in every way. And fruitful there is a really broad term. Everything you can think of, you want to be fruitful, okay? So God made the family to worship, and then he made the family to take dominion, to be fruitful, to cultivate the land he has given to them, okay? Again, these are not, I'm not going over anything super dramatic here, okay? I think, as I was preparing this sermon, I thought about Vince Lombardi, who was a great football coach in the 60s, and he, he every spring training or every training camp, he would start off and hold up a football and say, this is a football. Okay, well, this is kind of a, this is a football sermon, okay? This is what, these are the basics, okay? This is what kind of sermon this is, all right? Third, so first we have families downstream from worship. Second, family was created by God to do something, to be productive, to cultivate and be fruitful. Third, the husband is the leader and the head of his wife, okay? And this is clearly stated throughout scripture through direct command. Think of Ephesians 6, think of Colossians as well, through implication and through example, and this is the norm. This is what the Bible sets up as the way the world is made, okay? The way it is. The husband is the head, 1 Corinthians 11, the head of his wife. He is the one that rules over the home, okay? He's the one that's set up over the home. All right, now, I think a lot of times, husbands, we see this as reactive, primarily reactive. We view ourselves kind of like firemen, okay? And we're looking out there, and we just kind of sit back in our chair, and we watch things happen. Then when there's a fire, oh, Oh, let's go put that fire out. Okay, then we go relax again. Oh, there's another fire. Oh, let me put that fire out. That's really not 
what Jesus was like. Jesus, the great groom, that wasn't what he did. He was going somewhere. He was leading his people a certain direction. Okay? A godly husband is taking his family a certain direction. He has goals. He has a mission. Okay? He knows what the target is. He knows what the target is spiritually. He knows what the target is financially. He knows what the target is emotionally for his family. He knows what his home is supposed to look like. And he's taking his family that direction. So it's not primarily reactive. A good leader is not primarily reactive. He is going somewhere. What are the priorities in your family? What is the tone of your family? What is the atmosphere in your home? And yes, if you see a fire flare up, yes, you need to go deal with it. But my point is, I think a lot of us as husbands, we, we kind of tend towards a reactive lifestyle. And I'm not encouraging micromanaging your household, okay? That's not what I'm encouraging. But I'm encouraging taking your household a certain direction, okay? A certain direction. And primarily, this is through leading and loving your wife. This is the fundamental way you do this. The fundamental way Jesus is shaping the world is through leading and loving his bride. And the fundamental way a husband shapes his world is through leading and loving his wife. But he leads and loves her for her good and for the glory of God. For her good and for the glory of God. And that is why he is not a yes man. And some of you may have heard, well, a husband should try to make his wife happy. Well, that's good. Husband should try to make his wife happy. Again, you husbands are going home, oh, Pastor Jones said we didn't have to make our wives happy. No, you want to make your wife happy, but that is not the ultimate goal. Your wife's happiness is not the ultimate goal. And sometimes to honor God, you have to say no. Sometimes to honor God, you have to say, no, we're not going to go that direction. We're going to go a different direction. And they don't want to be a jerk about it. <laughs> they don't want to be a jerk about it. I think young husbands tend to be this way a lot more, you know. Well, I'm ahead now. Let me see how much I can push her around. No, that, don't be a jerk about it, but you do need to lead. And sometimes that means, hey, there's these things she wants to do. You're like, no, that's not a priority for our family. It's not a priority right now. Let me explain to you why. Let me explain to you why. Okay? And of course, over time, the goal is for you guys to get to a place where you don't have to talk about those things really. You know what the priorities are. You know where your family is supposed to be going. But Jesus lead, is leading his church somewhere. He doesn't just react to what his church is doing, the church is doing. He's taking his church somewhere, okay? And that is what a godly husband does. That is what a godly husband does. He says, okay, we're going this direction, okay? We're taking this path, all right? So in a godly family, the husband leads his family and loves his wife, and he has a, a goal for them, a goal for them, all right? That is part of what he does. And again, there's a lot more we could say about that. This isn't a sermon on how to be a good husband. We could preach a lot of sermons on that, how to be a good husband. Just as a basic, you are the leader of your household. You are the head of your wife. You are to take her a certain direction and lead her a certain way. With her as counselor, but nonetheless, you're responsible for that household. You're responsible for the direction of the home. And this isn't just putting out fires. This is actively leading your family a certain direction, Okay. And um, I encourage the men to think about that carefully. Where's my family going? And sometimes if you've been married for 20 years, it's easy to like take your foot off the pedal, okay? When you're first married, you tend to overreact. You're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna micromanage everything and push it hard. When you get older, you tend to take your foot off the pedal and be like, okay, I'm fine now. But even those, those who've been married 20, 30 years, where's your family going? What, what legacy do you wanna leave behind? Um, and so that's the, that's the goal there with a godly husband. Think about Christ going to the cross and leading his church, and that's what you want to do. Okay, so that's the third thing. The husband is the head and the head of his wife and the leader of his family and is setting the direction and the tone for his household, okay? One other note on that. That means if, you're, if there's something wrong in your household, 
the first thing you do is look at yourself. This is always just a good, a good rule of thumb. It doesn't mean you're the main problem, but that's always where you begin, husbands. When there's something wrong, when there's something you don't like, you don't immediately go, well, the kids. <laughs> you don't immediately go, well, the wife. You immediately go, well, okay, what am I doing wrong? Where have I messed up? Where have I gone awry? And you take a look, you spend some time in prayer, and you try to fix that in yourself first, because I can almost guarantee you, if there's a problem in your household, it's coming downstream from you in some way, shape, or form. Either you're not dealing with something or you're not leading, I can almost guarantee you there's something going on in your household that you need to deal with personally first before you come and say, hey, family, this is what we're going to do, okay? All right, so third thing is the husband in a godly family, the husband leads his family and loves his wife. He takes responsibility and he has a direction they are going, okay? Fourth, the wife's job in the home is to obey, submit, and support her husband and glorify her household. Okay, again, this is all throughout the scripture through both command and uh, implication and example, okay? And I want to look specifically here at 1 Peter 3, which I think is kind of an underused um, passage when it comes to the household in general, but especially wives. So Peter here is talking to wives who are not married to Christian men, okay? And that's important to understand, not married Christian, at least some of them are not. And this is what Peter says. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, that is, they're not Christians, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner... In former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Okay? So Peter here is talking to women who are in marriages with non-Christian husbands. And he's saying, listen, this applies here. You don't get to like toss this command out just because he's not a Christian. You're still supposed to be submissive. You're still supposed to obey. You're supposed to call him Lord in some sense, okay, even when he's not a Christian. So how much more as you as a Christian wife who are married to a godly husband who loves Jesus, who obeys Jesus, how much more are you to submit and to obey and to support your husband, okay? And submission here is both an attitude and an action, an attitude and an action. We live in a society which honors women who berate and mock their husbands. This is just standard fare, okay, out in the world. Women think it's funny. The world thinks it's funny. Even in churches, much less in society at large, women sit around and treat their husbands with disdain. One of the most countercultural things ladies can do is give a proper picture to the world of the church, how does the church treat Jesus? She loves him. She listens to him. She obeys him. She submits to him. She respects him. And wives, that is your job as a picture of the church. And I honestly think it's very hard in our culture. Our culture has twisted the way women view themselves, the way women view men has twisted it so badly. I mean, there's a whole culture out there that men are just awful, terrible human beings, okay? And women are great and magnificent. And women are great, okay? Women are great, but men are too, okay? And so my encouragement to you wives is to be submissive in attitude and action. Respect your husbands, 
respect your husband. You want to say, well, have you seen my husband? <laughs> I'm not sure he's very respectable. Well, you know what? God calls upon us to love our wives when they're not very lovable. And he calls upon you ladies to respect your husband sometimes when he's not very respectable. Men respond to respect. They respond to it. They want it. They long for it. And when you as a wife treat your husband with that respect that Peter talks about here in 1 Peter 3, treat your husband with the respect the church is supposed to give to her Lord and her husband, Jesus Christ, your husband will respond to that. That's what Peter's saying here. How can they be one without a word? By your attitude and the respect that you give, all right? The primary way a married woman honors Christ is by honoring her husband. The primary way a married woman dishonors Christ is by dishonoring her husband. This is the picture you are giving to the world. Just as a husband who treats his wife poorly is dishonoring Christ, so a wife who treats her husband poorly is dishonoring Christ as well. I don't know if, at Kroger, I'll never forget this couple that came through and the entire time the wife just berated the husband the entire time through the checkout line. I mean, just publicly berated him. And the poor guy, I mean, I, he, I maybe deserved it. I don't know. He certainly deserved it in the checkout line at Kroger. He didn't deserve it there. That's for sure. But it's thought. And that, that's the world we live in where women are encouraged to be this way. Okay? Women are encouraged to be this way. Don't we like that? Don't be like that. Be like the church. Love your husband. Respect him. Honor him. In a godly family, the wife cheerfully follows, supports, and submits to her husband and glorifies her home. And there's a lot more I could say about that, a lot more, but I'm going to stop there with that particular point, okay? So ladies, that is your job, okay? Fifth, last main point, and then we're getting to some application. The primary responsibility of both parents is to raise up godly children. Parents have authority in their household, the center of the home is fruitfulness. This looks different as the years move along. But for a bulk of those years, the main work is that of raising godly children. A parent's job is to pour themselves out for their children. Okay? This doesn't mean spoiling them. It doesn't mean giving children everything they want. Okay? It's very interesting. The lieutenant governor of Minnesota this week said, Our children will tell us who they are, and it is our job to believe them and help them move that direction. I was like, What? Where did that come from? Okay, and this just shows you how, how upside down our world is. The, the, the world actually believes the ch it is the child's job to instruct the parents on how they're supposed to function. Okay, Go back even 20 years, and that would have been nonsense. If people did, it have been nonsense, but certainly it is nonsense. You as a parent are to direct your children. Fathers are usually given this as sort of up here, but mo mothers are as well. This is a job from... Husbands and wives together. And think about Genesis 18 is a great example of this. If you remember, um, God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And God's thinking, should I tell? The Lord's thinking, should I tell Abraham this? And he says, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because Abraham is going to command his household after him. Abraham is going to command his household. Joshua 24, 15, you all know that one. Joshua's talking about the different idols. You can serve the idols over there. You can serve the idols here. But as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Joshua, I have authority here, and guess what? This is what we're doing. We're going this way. We're going to worship Yahweh. We're going to worship the living God. And then, of course, in Ephesians, Paul commands fathers, and by extension, mothers as well, to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay? This is your job. Probably for a bulk of your life, especially the early married years, this is your main job. And this is your main task. 
teaching the ch your children the ways of God. And it is hard work. It is a difficult work. And this is why sometimes easier for a dad to excel at his job than it is for him to excel with his children. Because sometimes the, ch the children honestly are harder than a spreadsheet. A lot harder. They're harder than whatever you might be doing at your work. Children are difficult, but they are a huge blessing from the Lord. And there is no impact you can have on this world like you can have by raising godly children. There's nothing you can do. I mean, you can, there's no discipleship plan you can come up with that will be as effective as you raising godly children, okay? Nothing you can do there, okay? So in a godly family, the parents exercise gracious but real authority over their children. Think about God our Father. How does he treat us, okay? Again, this is not an encouragement to be harsh or cruel to your children. It's not encouragement to be mean to your children. It's encouragement to patient direction of your children. Consistency, calm, tell, calmly telling them what they should do and what they shouldn't do, okay? That's what you're there for, okay? You're not there to let the child tell you what to do. You're not there to be your child's friend. You're not there to be your child's peer, okay? That comes later when they get a little bit older, okay? You can become more of a friend to them at that point. But when they're young, your job is to tell them, here's where you're supposed to go. And here's what you're supposed to do. And here's how you're supposed to do it. And of course, you are supposed to model that as well, moms and dads. One of the biggest problems we have is we're sinners. And so we tell our children, go do this. And sometimes we aren't doing that. Well, don't get angry with your sister. Like I just got angry with my daughter. Don't do that. So you've got to model it. You've got to model it for your children. All right. So in a godly family, they come into worship. They're taking dominion. The husband is leading his household, leading his wife in a certain direction. As a head, he's taking them somewhere, okay? The wife is supporting, respecting, honoring her husband and glorifying her household, okay? Making her household a beautiful place, okay? And finally, the parents are raising their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. They're diligently laboring to be faithful to those kids, okay? And that's hard work. That's what we're called upon to do. Okay, so now let's give a few applications to a few different groups, or a few different groups. So I'm just going to walk through these, try to be pretty, pretty brief with each one, okay? First, I feel like this needs to be said, now unless, you unless you have the gift of celibacy, you are called to marriage, okay? And this seems to be something that people feel like they can just sort of take or leave. Well, if I don't want to get married, I won't get married. If I do want to get married, I will get married. Okay? That's not how it works. Jesus says there are people who have the gift of celibacy, okay? And most of you don't. Hey, I think everybody knows it. Most of you don't. So if you are not, if you do not have the gift of celibacy, you are called to pursue marriage. That is the goal. That is the aim. Okay. Now the Lord might not give that to you. Okay. Most of us in here are married, but some of us are not. The Lord might not give that to you, but nonetheless, it is your calling. Okay. God set the world up this way. Most people, 99% of the people in the world should be married. It doesn't always happen, but that's the goal and that's the aim. Okay. First Timothy five says that younger widows are to marry. Okay, are to marry. The assumption there in 1 Timothy 5 is marriage is the norm. Okay, marriage is the norm. And we, can't, we live in a world where Christians kind of downplay that a lot of times. Okay, singleness is a gift, things like that. Okay, no, celibacy is a gift. Singleness is not a gift. Singleness is something that's for a temporary period of time. You need to try to get out of that wisely, but in, in God's time. Okay, so there's that. Okay, just a brief note on that. And we can talk a lot about the gift of celibacy. I'm not going to. Okay, secondly, to the young men who are not married, I want to say this. We have heard how difficult the marriage is today. In fact, among non-Christians, there's men, there's this thing called the marriage strike, 
where young men are just refusing to get married at all because of how difficult it is, how hard it is to provide for a family. And it is difficult. Marriage has always been hard, but it might be more difficult today than it has been for some time. Financially, the law, the courts are stacked against men as a general rule and in favor of women. So if something goes awry in your marriage, men see that, oh, well, I'm not going to get much there. I'm not going to, I'm going to end up paying a lot. So there's a lot of non-Christian men, even Christian men, who are like, you know what? Let's not get married at all. Let's just set it aside, okay? But imagine you're reading a story about two men in the Depression. And one man is scrapping, trying to provide for his household, working hard, diligently, giving extra food to his kids that he should be eating, working long hours so he can provide. It's hard, it's difficult, doesn't always work out, but he's striving to feed his family and feed his household. And imagine you read about another guy who's just like, you know what, this is too hard, I'm just gonna give up. (laughs) This is too hard, I'm just gonna give up. Too hard to provide for my family. In a lot of ways, we are in a depression for marriages. It is a hard landscape out there. It is difficult, but that doesn't mean we get to give up. If you're not married, Young men, God is calling you to this. He wants you to either be doing one of two things, either getting ready for marriage or pursuing a wife. One of those two things. Okay? And we can be lazy in either area. Some, men are lazy, some young men are lazy in getting married, ready for marriage, and some men are, are ready, but they're lazy in pursuing a wife. This is what God has called you to. Get ready and then pursue. Okay? This, is the, this is the way it's supposed to operate, the way it's supposed to work. And by getting ready, it don't mean you have to be perfect. You don't have to have your mortgage paid off, okay, to get married. Thank goodness, okay? You don't have to have all it squared away. You just have to be going the right direction. Your trajectory has to be good, okay? So young men, unmarried young men, it is more difficult than it was 50 years ago. But that doesn't make the pursuit any less worth it. It doesn't mean you get to abandon God's calling just because it's hard. Okay, just like a man in the Depression couldn't abandon providing for his wife, uh, family just because it was hard. Okay. So continue to pursue marriage. Make yourself ready for marriage and then pursue a woman. It is a lot easier in some ways to hang out with your guy friends and pour yourself into your job than it is to find a good woman. Okay. But in the long run, <laughs> your guy friends and your job are not going to provide what a woman can provide. Okay. Not going to provide. So I encourage you young men to pursue Marriage, pursue marriage. Don't just give up on it because it's hard. Young ladies, unmarried young ladies, you have a great opportunity at a time when women are, are act in sort, just such ungodly ways to be a picture of godly feminine beauty. Okay? So I encourage you young ladies, encourage you young ladies to be unapologetically Christian women. Okay? Unapologetically Christian women. And I'm speaking here in particular to young ladies who are not married. Are you cultivating domestic virtue? Do you respect your father? Do you respect your brothers? Do you respect your elders? Do you respect the men in your life? Or have you kind of bought in just a little bit to the idea that men are kind of stupid and they're kind of buffoons and they're really not as great as we women are, okay? And that's, that is the mindset of the world. That is the way the world thinks, okay? So are you getting yourself ready? For marriage, Are you cultivating those things in your life that will make you a good wife and a good mother? Okay, and obviously as parents, we think about this with our children, we need to be encouraging our children with this as well, okay? Third thing is some of you come from broken homes, maybe even non-Christian homes, and you do not have the tools that someone who's been raised in a Christian home would have when it comes to marriage, okay? What do you do? 
Okay, what do you do? And I think a lot of us are, to one degree or another, in this kind of a situation where we do not have all the tools. We look over here at this person, we're like, wow, this, this, these kids were raised in godly homes and they have all this sort of a capital that they've gotten from mom and dad to go into marriage. And I don't have that. Okay, we, you, some of you are thinking that way. What should you do? Well, think about Nehemiah again. You have your part of the wall you need to build. Okay, your part of the wall you need to build. What can you do to make, to kick the ball, or to move the ball a little further down the field? You don't have to do anything spectacular, but just move past. If you were raised in a broken home or a home where there was, the marriage was not good, try to move, move the ball a little further down the line. Make your household a little more righteous, a little more godly so that your children can build. These things don't happen quickly. Okay? God has you where he wants you. If you were raised in a non-Christian home or a broken home, that's what God wanted at the time. And now he has you here and he wants you to do things differently. He wants you to learn and to grow. Okay? Surround yourself with a good Christian community. Build on what God has given and don't be jealous of what God has given to other people. I think one of the hardest things when you come from a home where something's been busted up is to see a home where things have not been busted up. And you look over there and you're like, Lord, why did you not give that to me? Why do I not have that? Don't do that. Don't be jealous. God has given you what you need to obey him and to honor him. Okay. Next, some of you have been raised in godly Christian homes. In fact, a lot of you in here have been raised in godly Christian homes. Do not squander their, your gift. What is your ROI on your parents' investment? Okay. What is your return on investment for your parents? Your parents have poured into you. And they've given you all these gifts of both a picture of a godly home and the principles and the teachings of a godly home. How are you going to build on that investment? Okay. As, a God, as kids who were raised in a Christian home. Okay. Some of you have been given five talents. Some of you have been given 10 talents. Make sure you don't waste that. Make sure you don't squander that. I think Christian children who are raised in Christian homes can take for granted what a gift that is can take for granted what a gift that is. Do not do that. Build on what your parents have given to you. Build on what they've given to you. Do a little better. Move it a little further down and build on what they've given to you. Some of you are in hard marriages right now. Some of you are husbands in hard marriages. Some of you are wives in hard marriages. What do you do? You be faithful at your part of the wall. You have a spot. Be faithful. You can't change things. It's one of the hardest things, I think, when we're in a difficult relationship. You think you can change it. Usually you can't, okay? But you can be faithful with what God has given to you, okay? What is your job in that hard marriage? What has God called upon you to do? It doesn't change just because it's hard. It doesn't change just because it's difficult, okay? If you're a wife in a hard marriage, your job doesn't change. If you're a husband in a hard marriage, your job doesn't change. It stays the same. Be faithful. Be faithful where God has put you. Make sure you are not making excuses to sin. Okay. And then finally, some of you have been married 10, 20, 30, 40, I don't know if there's any 50 years, maybe there's 50 years in here, I don't know. Some of you have been married a long time. My encouragement to you, to those of you who've been married for a while, even 10 years, okay, that's a good, that's a good stretch of time, been married, is just keep growing. Persevere, run the race all the way to the end. Okay. Make sure you're growing as a couple. Make sure you're growing in your knowledge of Christ and his work. Make sure you're growing in your priorities and your understanding of where you want to go as a family. Keep finding ways to honor Christ in your marriage no matter how long you've been married. And again, I think as we get older, it's easy to take our foot off the pedal. 
Huh? We've done our job. I've been married 35 years. Isn't that enough, Lord? <laughs> I've been more than married 40 years. Isn't that enough, Lord? No. You want to keep the, your foot to the pedal all the way through the finish line. Finish out the race. And there's a lot of young people who need to see you finish the race, who need to see you persevere all the way to the end, who need to see your home become more glorious, more fruitful, more beautiful as the years go on. So those of you who have been married, keep growing. Keep finding ways to grow as a couple. Husbands, find new ways to lead your household in better, greener pastures. Wives, find new ways to respect and your husband and glorify your household. Find better ways to help your children or your grandchildren, in a lot of cases, grow in righteousness and holiness. Okay? Just push all the way to the end. That's kind of what I'm saying with that. It's kind of amazing how many marriages I've seen over the last... 15, 20 years fail, not in the first five years, but 20, 25 years in. How disheartening is that? Okay? So don't ever assume that just because you've got 20 years in, you got it. Boom, we got it. We're nailed. We're okay. You know, keep pushing through. Okay? So remember Nehemiah. All around us, we see the ruin of the family. We see the walls broken down. We see things that need to be done. Our job is to pick up the trowel. Pick up the mortar and get to work. And all of us have a job to do. All of us have a part of the wall. We need to cry a little bit about some of the brokenness. And then we need to say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is my calling? How can I start rebuilding this wall and start rebuilding Jerusalem? If we do that, the Lord will prosper our work as he prospered Nehemiah's work. That's what he will do. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for our families. We thank you for the great family, the church. We thank you for the great husband, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our master. We thank you for the church, his, um, his, bride, his bride and how beautiful he is making her. We ask, Father in heaven, that you would help us in this place, in our ways, in our homes, with our children, to honor you by being obedient to the commands you've put before us in Scripture. Keep us from slacking off, keep us from laziness, keep us from discouragement and despair, and help us to, help us to work, work hard and help us to work in hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.